this is Abe Hefter, and welcome to You Heart to Hartford. Here we take you inside the University of Hartford, and the story is being told by the many talented people who are the University of Hartford. Faculty, staff, students, and alumni. The experience and experiences they're sharing on our West Hartford campus and beyond. Ryan Speedo Green. From juvenile delinquency to opera stardom. After a childhood of anger and violence, the 32-year-old now commands the stage around the world. Now, that's the headline that introduced Ryan Speedo Green, U-Heart Class of 2008, in a December 2018 appearance on CBS News 60 Minutes. He's been called the high priest in the temple of the Metropolitan Opera in New York, a member of the Vienna State Opera who performs on the world stage in German, French, English, and Italian. And it is a great pleasure to have Ryan Speedo Green with us on You Heart to Hartford. Speedo, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. Speedo, I want to take you back to the fall of 2016. The publisher, uh, Little Brown, publishing Sing for Your Life by New York Times journalist Daniel Bergner. The book tells your story, a personal and artistic journey from a trailer park in southeastern Virginia and from time spent in Virginia's juvenile facility of last resort to the Met stage. The New York Times book review called the book inspiring. The Washington Post called it a vital, compelling, and highly recommended book. Sing for Your Life has been honored with a a number of recognitions, including Publishers Weekly Book of the Year. Now, why did you feel it was important for you to share your personal story in this fashion. Yeah, I'm, I, I felt uh, at the time I didn't feel that I had a story to tell when the book was being written. I thought that the, the life that I was living was something that you know anybody would live, um, especially someone who wants to, who wanted to achieve a goal or or realize a dream. And it wasn't till the process of making of of starting the book that I realized that what I did wasn't actually that normal. Uh, and that the, the what where I came from and where I was at the time of the writing of the book was was something that I, I really needed to not only uh, tell people tell that story but also give myself a little bit of credit and give myself a little bit of realization of what I've accomplished to that point. And for the book to be written, uh, I wanted specifically you know educators to know how important they are to a child's life and development, and that. Even a simple, a simple thing like telling a child that they are, you know, that they are doing something good or that they're worth something or giving a little bit of extra attention to the, you know, to the problems that might be happening at a, at a, in a child's home that you, you may never know why a child is acting up or being disruptive in class. You know, it, these sort of things that educators have power in, in helping and creating could change a child's life because the, it, my story is a story of educators and how important they are to a child's life from the moment I was in uh, a special ed class in fourth grade to that moment when I was in juvenile detention and my teacher called me and found out that I was in juvenile detention and called me to tell me that this is not the end. When I, when I get out of juvenile detention, I can still change my life and be better. And that stuck with me. I think that, you know, that saying it takes a village not only includes the family, but it includes your, the educators. Speedo, you mentioned that at the time the, the, the book was being written, you didn't you know, feel you had a story to tell, per se. So at what point did you realize that you did have a story to tell and that it was important for you to tell it? 
Um, <laughs> it was it was in doing research about uh, myself because when uh, Daniel Bergner approached me, um, the the book came out of an article that Daniel wrote for the New York Times Magazine, where he was chronicle, chronicling the journey of the semifinalists of the Metropolitan National Opera Council auditions, which is like the sort of American idol for opera, where they take uh, representatives from every state, thousands per, per year, and narrow it down to a, a couple dozen. And he took those semifinalists, um, started following them and, and finding out their backgrounds and what brought them there to, to the semifinals at the Metropolitan Opera. And what he asked to meet with me for 45 minutes to talk about, you know, my, my life story. And I sort of like avoided him because I was like, I don't really have anything to, to say or tell. Um, but he having, I guess, that which, which you would call writer's intuition, mm -hmm. um, sort of, you know, hounded me and found me in somewhere in the, the bowels of the Met and offered me a free free lunch, which is like the perfect thing to ask a student <laughs> to get a meeting, a meeting for. I was like, free food, of course I'll go. <laughs> so our 45-minute uh, lunch conversation turned into three and a half hours. And I just kind of, he kind of asked me questions and I just answered them honestly, which is like one of the qualities, I guess, a writer might find interesting is someone who just answers something pretty easily and pretty, uh, honestly. And, uh, I didn't know that he was seeing something or, or, or hearing something that was book worthy or even article worthy. I was just telling him how I got there and <laughs> where I was in my career. And he then asked me to follow me um, around during the competition. And I didn't see any problem with it because I was like, you know, probably not going to make it to the finals anyway. <clears throat> Little did I know I would make it to the finals. Little did I know that I would win the competition. Little did I know that I would be chosen, the only person chosen from the competition to come study at the Metropolitan Opera. And that that process would change my life and change my career and my trajectory. But for some reason, I guess he knew. <laughs> um, and, and, and mind you, Daniel Bergner is not an opera singer, nor is he. He's like, you know, an amateur musician plays the guitar and likes to sing. But his intuition at that time made him want to follow me and see where my journey would take me. And in the process of researching my life and me having to delve into my story, sort of like almost like therapy to talk about my past, my time in juvenile detention, the home of which I grew up in, the the, the violence that was in my home and in my neighborhoods, and even my my process of my education to become an opera singer, um, I realized myself that there were so many opportunities for me to become a number, to become a stereotype, especially in the in the communities and the family I grew up in, where two of my brothers are felons. And I was on that track as well. And I didn't happen. And it was, uh, I, it was a blessing to have the teachers that I had in my life. It was a blessing to have the opportunities that were, op that were given to me that were normally giving to African-Americans at all, especially in the, the neighborhoods that I grew up in. And I was very, very, very blessed uh, to have those opportunities given to me. Was it difficult to have to remember and relive your childhood when you were telling your story for Sing For Your Life. Man, I can tell you that I, from the moment I got out of juvenile detention, I made a very adult decision, which at the time I didn't think it was an adult decision. I just thought that it was a decision that I had to make in order for me to sort of survive. But I put every moment before and during juvenile detention in the back of my mind in a very faraway place because um, I knew that if I dwelled on my past, that it would be my future. And again, I didn't realize that this decision was a very adult and mature decision to make when I did it. Um, I just did it because it was a necessity for me to survive in the, in the environment that I was living in. 
And when working with Daniel and the book Sing for Your Life, I realized that if I wouldn't have made that decision, my entire rest of my story would be different. Not many people can say that when they were 12 years, 12 years old, that it was the lowest point of their life. Hmm. I mean, not many, adult, not many adults who are 50 or 60 can say that their childhood was the lowest moment of their life. But as a, you know, I'm, looking, I'm talking to you today as a 34-year-old man that at 12 years old, that was the, lo- the, the bottom my life has ever been. And from that day, um, after being locked up in juvenile detention, when I got out, every single day that I didn't wake up in juvenile detention or didn't wake up in jail, or didn't wake up in trouble with the law or didn't wake up in a, in a position of becoming another st- number or another cog in the machine of the justice system in America was a better day. And even going through the process of becoming uh, and training to be an opera singer and a musician um, was incredibly tough. And I fell and failed more times than I ever succeeded. But those failures were nothing compared to being locked up. And so for me, a failure in music was just another opportunity for me to succeed or me to better myself or another opportunity to further myself in education and in this career. Speedo, what was it as a as a 12-year-old that put you at that point in your life? I, I again, I, I mentioned before, I grew, I grew up in a, a very violent home. And at that time, I think a lot of, uh, for me personally, I, a lot of times when children act out and are very aggressive and violent, especially when people are being kind to them, a lot of times it's because they don't think they're worthy of that kindness and they don't like themselves. And at, for me, uh, at that time, I didn't like who I was. I didn't like where I came from. I didn't like the life that I was living. And anytime people offered me kindness or showed me compassion, I didn't think that I deserved it. And so I, I made them feel, I wanted to make them feel that, that I didn't deserve it. And that's why I acted out and I got very violent and that I brought that into my home. I brought that, um, which got me, I had a violent interaction with my mother where I threatened her life. And, uh, yeah, they, she called the cops and the cops did not feel that I was sorry. I felt that I would be, um, unsafe for me to be home. And they put me in shackles and drove me off to, uh, to juvenile detention where I, I was sentenced to spend the summer in juvenile detention. Speedo, you, you talk about, uh, you spoke about the, the turning point when you made what you called an adult decision. How old were you at that point and, and what led you to this decision? I was, I was 12 years old and I just got out of juvenile detention. And I was heading home. My mother moved to a trailer park in uh, Windsor to give me and my brother a fresh start because my brother had also been in trouble with the law as well. In moving to this new neighborhood, you know, my mom basically put the ball in our court to find new friends, find a better way to to present myself in school. Again, I think back at it. I don't know. I don't, I don't know how many twelve-year-olds would listen to their parents at that point and be like, "Okay, I'm going to completely change the way that I act, who I'm around, the way that I talk, you know, uh, how I view education." But I did. I I decided I'm I'm going to hang out with the kids who <clears throat> I may thought were the the nerds in class because I was like I wanted to be around people that were into the right things that I thought that teachers respected because I wanted teachers to respect me. And those decisions put me in the position to find my voice in not only singing, but find my voice in, in, in life and what I wanted to do and what I, who I wanted to be as a person. 
You talk about finding your voice, uh, I guess, in more ways than one, Speedo. What, what led you to choose the Heart School to pursue a degree in music? What helped me choose the Heart School was um, not only the fact that they had, had a teacher there, a voice teacher who I fell in love with as a, as a, as a human being and as an educator, the recently passed away Joanna Levy. She came to my high school. I went to I went I went to a magnet school for the arts, sort of like Fame, mm-hmm. called Governor School for the Arts, where you studied uh, you studied half your day in your normal school, your home school, and then you went to a magnet school where you studied in your art, whether it be dance or jazz or inst- classical instrumental or voice or musical theater. And I was in the classical uh, voice program, the opera program. And she was friends with uh, some of the people in the higher ups at Governor School. And she came with some of the faculty from University of Hartford, the Hart School of Music, to hear the singers who were at the Hart School. And at the time, I was still very, very, very new to singing in opera. I think I had been singing like for three years at the time. And I still couldn't really read music. I still couldn't. I still couldn't really play piano. My uh, theory and ear training skills were pretty much non-existent. <laughs> but Joanna Levy heard me, and she spoke with me, and she saw something in me that I didn't see in myself. And she spoke to my my voice teacher at the time, um, Robert Brown, who's also recently passed away, about me. And first of all, what I could give to University of Hartford, and what she could give to me as my teacher at University of Hartford. And it was almost instantaneous match made in heaven. Hmm. She saw my passion for this art and she saw an open mind and an uh, open uh, open book to write in. And to she knew that I was the kind of person that there was nothing that she could uh, ever put in front of me that I wouldn't do everything in my power to climb over or to achieve. And she tested me at at University of Hartford more than any person before her. And I found that challenge extremely rewarding, extremely beneficial, because without the experiences that I had at University of Hartford with her as my voice teacher, with Dr. Bolkovac as my course teacher, with Wayne Rivera as my um, opera teacher, and all the other staff and faculty at the Hart School of Music, I would not be singing on the greatest stages in the world. Speedo, you may have already mentioned or answered this uh, next question um, as a result of the you know, the, the, the relationships that you forged at, at the Hart School. But where, where did that passion for opera first come from? Um, how did you discover that? Yeah, um, I would say that uh, I got I got into uh, opera by accident, as I mentioned uh, before. Like I, I st- uh, when I got out juvenile detention, I started looking for people and avenues for me to meet and for for me to stay off the streets because I didn't want to be in the streets of my neighborhood where I could get in trouble. And I started doing extracurricular activities, uh, uh, for instance, Latin club. I joined the Latin club and those kids in the Latin club, uh, sort of led me to join choir, which choir led me to, led me to audition for this magnet school for the arts called government school for the arts in Norfolk, Virginia. And this is like an elite program of the greatest artists in the Southeastern Virginia area. And, um, I got in again at the time. I don't even know how I got in, <laughs> but they chose me. And when I got into this program, I didn't really know what I was getting into. I just knew that it was like a, a very elite special program for young um, musicians to go to. And they, when they mentioned opera to me, I was like, oh, man, is that like where that big, fat, you know, white Viking lady with the horns on her helmet breaking windows? Is that what that is? <laughs> or something like, you know, Bunny of Seville, which I, I'm sure anybody over the age of like 40 might know what that is. I, I really thought it was a joke, and it was in my first trip 
to see an opera, my first opera that I ever saw, which I was so lucky and so blessed to be able to see an opera at the Metropolitan Opera as my first opera on a school field trip. The first opera I saw was an opera called Carmen. And going to the Met was already uh, amazing enough because it was my first time in New York City, you know, as, as a teenager, which you can imagine was huge for me. And mm-hmm. to walk in the Lincoln Center where, you know, this sort of like Coliseum-like structure where you walk in and there's like Tiffany's glass and red velvet carpet and a house that seats over 4,000 people with an orchestra over 90 instruments, you know, on a stage th- the size of half a football field. You know, it was so grand. It was like being in the Disney world of mm-hmm. opera. But what made it extremely impactful and life-changing for me as a young African-American male boy is that the lead singer, the person who was singing the title of Carmen, was an African-American woman by the name of Denise Graves. And for me to see someone who looked like me on stage performing at the greatest opera house in the world, in my opinion, it made opera real. It made the idea of me being on stage real. People, uh, just like African-Americans, a lot of African-American male, males and females see themselves in sports or in film or in modeling because they see themselves in commercials. They see themselves on the biggest arenas, in the biggest fields, in the, in the Olympics, you know, winning medals and representing the United States. For me, it made opera real for me. And for my first opera to be that opera with that person – it made it real. And then, of course, I got to meet her afterwards, which was extremely amazing. Hmm. And she treated me like I was like her nephew or her best friend's son, you know, took pictures with me, called me her boo. You know, I was I was in love. <laughs> and I left the Met that day. And I told my my voice teacher, Robert Brown, at the time I told him, I know what I want to do with my life. I want to sing at the Met. And that and for a boy from a trailer park who had who had only been a, who had just been in juvenile detention like two years before to, to have a dream like that. To, to, and for me, that was the first dream, the first actual goal that I ever had in my life. For it to be that, you knew that opera was, was going to be the most important thing in my life. So, Speedo, that was uh, during a field trip. How old were you at that point? I was 15. So you went from uh, taking in the, uh, the Metropolitan Opera in that fashion and everything that it meant to you in your life, and you went on to perform at the Met. Um, how did that feel for the first time? Yeah, I, I will say, um, you know, after that, after I told Robert Brown of my dream of singing at the Met, instead of telling me like, you know, it's impossible or, you know, that you should aim a little lower, <laughs> he gave me a list, like a very long list, almost a list uh, longer than, than some people's list of, of spending on a grocery shopping, a big grocery right. shopping list. He told me I had to learn music. I had to be able to read music. I had to be able to play piano. I had to be able to sing in foreign languages. I had to actually be able to even sing in front of people. I had to do auditions. I had to go to uh, undergraduate school. I had to go to grad school. I had to uh, do young artist programs. I had to sing at regional houses. You know, he gave me a incredibly long list of things that I had to do before I even could get audition for the Met Chorus, which is like one of the pinnacles of opera singing in the world. And that to me was like an invitation to succeed because he didn't tell me I couldn't do it. He just said I had to accomplish like all these feats to do it. And so I took that long list and I took it to heart and I spent the next nine years trying to accomplish every single thing on that list. And then nine years later, at the age of 24, I debuted at the Met. And it was, how do you say the, the, the greatest moment of my life? Uh, up to that point, there was nothing. How do you say if, I, if, a, if a comet would have hit me as I'm walking out the Met after debuting that day, my life would have been complete. Hmm. Like my story would have been complete. But 
unfortunately for me and very fortunate for 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 me at the same time i accomplished it at a, at, at that age and so now i had to at that moment create new dreams new goals hmm. and that has been my driving force for my career and for my want for 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 telling my story is that i didn't want the met to be me seeing at the met to be my final story in my life i want there's so much more that uh, i i have left in this world to accomplish not only on the stage but off the stage so you kind of talk about that first chapter of your life, if you will, and appearing at the Met for the first time. How do you view the second chapter, if I can call it that, of your life? How do I view the second chapter of my life? The yeah. second chapter of my life, um, I view it as realizing all of the hard work that my voice teachers and my educators have put into me. And, and, and now the second phase of my life, after training and putting in the work, and sort of doing like my rookie contract, as you can, as I can like kind of make a metaphor. Now I'm in the prime of getting into the prime of my career where I'm realizing, you know, my full potential of singing roles and singing in certain opera houses all over the world. But the, also the another part of my, this chapter of my life is, you know, being the man that all of the people in my life who are my village, who are the educators who who put the work into me, realizing the kind of man that I want that I want to be, that I'm continuing to be. You know, uh, being a father, I have two beautiful children and an amazing wife who I'm devoting my life to and devoting, you know, my career to be succeeding so that I can show them and sh and and how much that, you know, they mean to me and how much, you know, this career uh, can help me provide for them and give them opportunities. Speedo, what advice would you give to your younger self or what advice would you give to someone growing up with a, a troubled upbringing that you know there's always a tomorrow and that you can't help as a child as a teenager you can't help the home you're born born into you can't help the parents that you have but what you can help is your education and how serious you take it and for me i was blessed and lucky to have educators who pushed me who didn't let me fail, who didn't let me be mediocre or didn't let me quit. I was very lucky and very blessed to have those kind of educators. And I will say that, you know, not, not every educator can be that way. Not every teacher can be that way and, and be that amazing and be that hard-headed when it comes to their students. But you as a student can be that hard-headed, can be that focused, can be that gear-oriented where you take your education and your time in, in, in your education seriously so that when you get to that point where you can go to college or you can get scholarships or you can you know, get further education, that you are already prepared and in a position that you don't have to rely upon your home or your environment or the, you know, the people you're living with to push you forward. And I think for me, I would tell any young person who is in, in a similar situation that I was in, let your childhood be the lowest and the most sad part of your life. Because once you put forth the effort to you know, get out of your home and be successful, then you, every day you have after that is going to be a brighter day. Ryan Speedo Green, baritone, class of 2008 from the University of Hartford, now an artist of international demand at the world's leading opera houses. Uh, honors and awards include a 2014 George London Foundation Award, a 2014 Annenberg Grant recipient, 2014 Gerda Listener Foundation first prize winner, finalist in the Palm Beach Opera Competition, and winner of the 2018 Anchor Award from the University of Hartford. Established to recognize alumni who have distinguished themselves by achieving the highest level 
level of professional and community accomplishments. Um, Speedo, it has been an absolute joy to talk to you, with you. Thank you for, for sharing your story and continued success. Thank you, Mr. After. Thank you so much. Production and research assistance for UHart to Hartford provided by UHart students Kristen Mascara and Dylan Reyes. I'm Abe Hefter.